Hola, it's Joe Partavilla. Welcome back to the Forbes Books Podcast. And the first question a lot of entrepreneurs ask themselves after they've developed a product or service is what makes me marketable? What is it that I do that will make my thing commercially viable? When it comes to sports, Michael Jordan not only changed basketball forever, but he changed the world of marketing as well. Sure, athletes have always pitched products. Babe Ruth used to hawk cigarettes and Muhammad Ali once endorsed roach traps. But Jordan was something else. Last year, he made an estimated $130 million from Nike. That's four times as much as LeBron James, and Jordan walked away from the Bulls more than 20 years ago. So what makes an athlete marketable? Joining me today is the CEO of one of the most recognizable sports marketing companies on the globe, GSE Worldwide. His name is Mike Principi. Hey there, Mike. Hey, Joe. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. And let's start with GSC. You describe yourselves as a fully integrated talent representation and sports marketing agency. What separates you from the other folks that do what you do? Well, everybody does a good job. We think we do a great job. Uh, We've got 30 dedicated GSCers, 175 clients. I would differentiators. Or, you know, one, our the deals we do, uh, our guys and gals routinely get highest market deals for, for our clients, whether it's huge eight-figure deals that, that you'll see for, uh, you know, the, the Bryson DeChambeau's, the Jim Furyk's of the world, the, the truly creative deals you'll see for the Sophia Kennans and the, the Motorola's, the Lexi Thompson Goldman Sachs deals. You know, we just try, we're really creative in the deals that we do in terms of driving value. Uh, we try to be first movers outside of Gronk and Pat Mahomes. Uh, we let off the, the sports world by kicking off the next two NFTs. We launched Bryson DeChambeau's NFT, the, the first global athlete. Uh, and then we did the first NCAA athletes uh, NFT, Luka Garza, the 21 Naismith Player of the Year award. So, you know, look, we drive good deals for folks, great deals, top-of-the-market deals, and we're very creative in how we, we approach the market in, in driving new technologies or, or new, you know, literally new product for the market. All right, cool. There's a lot to unpack there, and we're going to get to some of that later. But how common is the fact that you're sort of a hybrid agency, you know, sports marketing and the, the talent side of it? Is that pretty common nowadays in your world? Because I just remember it always being, they, they sort of li- like lived in different silos, the marketing and the talent side. So how common now is it this sort of like hybrid approach? It's getting more common, uh, much more common. You still will have the individual one discipline shops that will focus purely on field or focus purely off field or will just do talent but won't do corporate consulting or will do events but won't do talent. We identified about 20 years ago that the key for us is content and and talent is content. And it's not rocket science. Mr. McCormick, who founded IMG, uh, geez, you know, in the 50s, 60s, uh, he he figured that out. Now, we're fortunate enough, actually, to have uh, McCormick DNA in our business. Uh, His grandson, Chris McCormick, works with us, who is just a, a super, a super agent and individual. But, uh, but we, we identified that content always has been and, and is king. Talent creates that content. So for us, we look at an business that revolves around talent and then uses our talent both as access and content to get into 
the corporate side, to get into the branding side, to get into the selling side for, for properties and brands. And then what we do also is we'll use our talent to create events around them as well. So for example, we've got a, a robust tennis practice. We, we have a top 10 tennis agency in the, in the world. Sloan Stevens, Sophia Kennan, Grigor Dimitrov, uh, Sam Query, Jack Sock, Jeannie Bouchard, some really young, fun athletes, and Brendan Nakashima and Layla Fernandez. But, but what we did, and we're actually holding this event, we created the world's most exclusive tennis program where we will create a tour-like environment. We do it uh, before the U.S. Open, before Indian Wells, and we're planning on doing it before Wimby, before COVID hit. But we take our athletes, we will take other uh, uh, tennis stars and put them in a tournament format with amateurs. And we create a, a whole weekend out of it. We have a massive player party bash the night before. And then uh, the following day, we have this wonderful day-long, basically, uh, event of tennis where we use our clients as, as the content and the focal point, And we'll invite CMOs and CEOs and other folks that we want um, to uh, you know, broaden relationships with. And, and when we're able to take our content and specifically drive relationships to them and through them, for us, that's the brass ring. Uh, I got a super simple question to probably a very complex answer, but what makes an athlete marketable? Wow. Okay. I told you. I told you it was a very yeah. simple question, but very complex answer. Very, I did warn you, Mike. <laughs> but, well, but fortunately, I've had two kids, so those super simple questions like, <laughs> why is the sky blue, or yeah. what's past the star? Okay. Talk to your mother. Yeah. Right? Well, your wife can't help you now, so it's on you, Mike. <laughs> that, that, no, it's on me, and I, and I accept the mantle of responsibility. Okay. First and foremost, we're Americans. We have a winning culture. Winning is the first key to marketability. You win, people want to be associated with winners. Two, personality. Is the person a, you know, do they have attributes that are appealing to a large demographic? Uh, and, you know, and, and look, certain people are marketable to certain demographics and to certain businesses and other folks are, are marketable and appealable to, to another. A gymnast may not be as appealable as, uh, you know, to a, a demo that a, uh, an NFL lineman may be. It could be, could be two different personalities. But you know, I would say it's skill level, personality, uh, good looks never hurts. You know, more and more good looks is becoming synonymous with, with marketable. But I'd say skill, personality, and good looks. All right, cool. I'll give you a gold star for that answer, Mike. Nice job on that. <laughs> Thank uh, you. Now, from a marketing perspective, to me, the NFL has always been sort of this top-heavy league. There's usually about four or five players that dominate most of the major marketing opportunities, and it's usually quarterbacks outside of uh, a J.J. Watt that had a great run as an A-list pitchman. What kind of pie does that leave everyone else? And I know the marketing pie when it comes to NFL is pretty large, it being the number one sport here in the United States. But how much are the rest of the folks fighting over? Joe, you nailed it. The NFL is a monster in terms of size. And it's a monster in time in terms of consumption. So you'll see a, a Mahomes or a Gronk or, you know, Brady or Aaron Rodgers. Yeah. Aaron Rodgers. And, and by the way, if you look at all those guys going back to your first point, all winners, yeah. uh, they all project great personalities on camera. They're all, inverted commas, marketable. But 
the the NFL is so is so big and there's so much visibility uh, and exposure that there there is more than enough room for for other folks. One in the local markets, you know, not every deal has to be a national mm-hmm. deal. But the, the thing we love about football is there's always a Super Bowl, and you know, in non-COVID times, the Super Bowl is a week-long industry affair, and there's radio row, and there are interviews, and there are signings, and autographs, and it's just a I mean, it's just this voracious maw of content uh, consumption around a Super Bowl. Uh, Same thing around college bowl games. You see a lot of guys who, if they're not playing uh, in the NFL, retired or injured, they'll be around for for those things. So there's more than enough room in the NFL because it's so large outside of your, you know, your, your superstar marketers. Hmm. And let's go on the other side of the coin there in baseball. And I want to talk about marketing baseball. It's something you have a lot of experience in. I think one of the companies used to run legacy uh, agency was focused on hardball. Why are baseball players not part of the Zeitgeist like they were when we were growing up? You know, I know Shohei Itani is having a moment, but there just aren't that many players that are household names anymore. Again, this might be a, a very complex answer you're going to have to give me, but what, what happened to baseball? Why don't they just have that it factor anymore? And, and it's something we've given a lot of, of thought to. Two reasons. One, uh, the Players Union has done such a good job of increasing average salaries and player contracts. We're seeing $340 million contracts. Jack Welch would be you know, pleased with a, with a payday like that. I mean, these are real dollars. So one, guys are getting so well compensated on the field. But if you think about it, they're also playing 162 games in effectively six months. And then you've got, you know, spring training or any winter ball. So guys don't have a ton of downtime. Uh, And it may not be worth burning your one or two days off a month for a, a, a marketing deal that kind of pales in comparison to your playing contract. So th- there may be less incentive uh, for athletes to do that. And, and two, the second thing I would say is as sport and, and media has become more regionalized, baseball, I, I believe, has become hyper-localized. The national game of, of the week, you, you don't really see that much anymore because there's so much programming. There's so many games on the on the local networks or the regional networks that it's hard to capture a national audience in baseball or harder than it was 20 30 years ago where you know you had four or five stations and you know you knew you were always going to see twib notes so that's yeah. where you would get your you know your baseball update or something you, you know i think it's you, you mentioned that and it's, one of the things i've always said is i think cable killed and helped baseball because as a kid growing yep. up you only saw your local team, and then if you wanted to see like the uh, the superstar from, say, if you're a Mets fan, if you want to see a superstar from the American League, the only time you could see that player was either when they were playing the Yankees, which you hated to do, or the All Star Game. Now all of a sudden, and I know they've kind of dialed back on this. There's baseball games four or five days a week, and on top of that, when Sports Center came of prominence in the '80s, you can get all the highlights and know all the players without having to invest three hours in it. So. And it, but but and but of course, obviously, on the money side of that, baseball got enriched by these cable deals. So I think it's one of the things where it's helped and hurt the game itself. I I, I agree with you. I hundred percent agree with you on that. You know, if you look at on the other side, you know, there's still around seventy, you know, pre-COVID, around seventy million tickets sold a year. So 
you know, baseball is it's 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 a real sport. Uh, you know, ratings may be down while well, there's other content, but people still go watch a lot of sport. And because it's so content heavy, the the broadcasters, whether it's local, regional, national, cable, digital, you know, OTT, it, it just fills content. So it will always be a valuable commodity. You know, baseball's not dead by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, and you bring up TV ratings. Are we at a point now, Mike, where we just don't care about the ratings anymore like we used to? You know, the Super Bowl no longer breaks records. Uh, you see basketball games and baseball games, their ratings are minuscule. I mean, is, are we at a point where it's like, eh, yeah, I guess a lot of people are watching, but it's still a valuable property. You know what I think, Joe? I think that we don't have the metrics right yet. And I know a lot of groups are, are trying, the Nielsen's of the world are trying to get the ratings right because there's so many ways to consume that given piece of content. There's so many ways to consume the game. You're not just watching it on, you know, on, on television or watching it on cable. You could watch it through your handheld. You know, you could stream it someplace. And I don't think there really is an effective method of tracking, of tracking all that. I, I actually think that once there is an effective method of aggregating the exposure you will see increase because it, there, there are more access points to watch these sports. We just haven't done a very good job uh, of being able to measure the collection of, of aggregation. And on that point too, uh, you know, bringing up my cable point, also the technology point, the fact that back in the day, again, you only had that one chance to see that ball game. But now all of a sudden, if you're like, if you want to see LeBron play the Brooklyn Nets, you don't have to watch that game. You could wait till after the game's over, pop on YouTube and watch the highlights. So in a way, you know, it's 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 widening its reach, but then in a way it's siphoning the the eyeballs that would normally watch that game at that particular time when it's on. Joe, I mean, you're right. I mean, look, I'm sure you're familiar with this, that sometimes you'll be watching a game and you'll have your Twitter feed open or you'll have your Instagram open. And as things, you could be watching another game and as things are happening, you're tracking something else. And holy cow, LeBron just did this. Let me switch over there. Uh, you know, so it's... It's really interesting how we're consuming sport these days. And I guess on that point, though, Mike, you could say that just about any media. I mean, you're, yeah. you see the numbers on your regular broadcast networks and, and even TV in general and even these streamers. I mean, you never hear about streaming data unless it's good. Disney Plus only puts out a press release when, they're, when they have blockbuster yeah. numbers. So we really don't know how many people are consistently consuming all this media, but we just know it's out there. And, uh, you know, who knows? I'm just worried about the fact that Everything is going to be sort of just we're going to be all living in this world like we're not going to watch the game anymore. We'll just watch the highlights. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I miss the yeah. and like you said, you know, the, the ticket thing is probably a big thing. Like the in-game experience is probably going to be the biggest driver going forward because I just don't think TV ratings are going to be there in the future. And you, you know what, Joe? And maybe, you know, this, this just belies my age and sometimes a pining for, for an earlier time, but... One of my favorite things in the world was, you know, going to a baseball game for, let's just say it's three hours and actually scoring the game. Yeah. I, you know, I could have been 10 years old or 40 years old, but there was just a, you know, kind of just a, a, a pleasant cadence about being locked into one thing for three hours at a time. And I hope that doesn't disappear because it's, uh, it's, it's certainly dated, it's getting faded, but uh, that was always a very special uh, thing for me to do no doubt well thanks for indulging me on that let's get back into gsc and gsc's involvement in golf i know a couple years ago you acquired a swiss-based golf management agency why are you betting on golf 
Oh man, uh, we're betting on golf for for a number of reasons. One, the world's becoming more and more global. You know, a global marketplace. Uh, golf is truly a global sport. Yes, the NBA is uh, is hyper global in their outreach. Uh, but if you look at golf, you know there are tours all over the world, and you know on the leaderboard in any given day, you'll see Americans, you'll see Spaniards, you'll see Colombians, you'll see Mexicans, you'll see South Africans, you'll see English, you'll see Scots. Uh, it's it's really global. So you know, for for one thing, we're we're betting on the the global nature of the of the sport, and you know, and two. The demos that it represents are, you know, are fairly fairly higher end, and we think there's always a room for for luxury in uh, in the marketplace. And when when GSE when, when we're looking at investing in different businesses, it's not unlike you know building your own portfolio. You look to have a balanced mix of assets, and with golf, and, you know, and tennis for that matter, the demographics that they represent are more higher end. There is uh, a fair amount of luxury uh, and wealth in the world, uh, and we wanted to have exposure to that. Uh, you know, the, the other thing is the the two gentlemen uh, uh, whose company joined with us, Carlos Rodriguez and Eric are just phenomenal. You know, one phenomenal golf agents, but more importantly, phenomenal human beings. And in the two years that I can't believe it's it's really only been two years, they're not just partners, their their friends and, and their family at this point. It's you know, it was more betting on Carlos and Eric uh with the understanding that this was definitely a sector that we wanted to be in. Hmm. It's funny because you you remind me of, you know, being an old school radio guy. Mm-hmm. I remember in the marketplace there were the, the old timey uh talk radio station you know, they would have they would know nowhere be near the top ten of the radio of, of the of the radio stations in that particular town. But the fact that they had an older audience that was a little more uh, affluent, they can go after the Lexuses and the Mercedes of the world. And then those stations, even though they didn't have the the numbers that the other stations did, they were making more money because they were so attractive to media buyers. And I guess that's sort of like what you're investing in now. It's not just, you're obviously not going to have as many eyeballs on a golf player as you would say an NBA star, but the fact that you're you're catering to that luxury crowd, it does come at a premium price. Correct. And a golfer can have a 30-year career on tour. Mm. You know, uh, I'm not saying it's akin to, to owning a utility stock, but it's a, you know, it's, it's, it's a long, uh, with the right athletes, you know, fairly safe investment. All right, so let's segue from guys who can play the sport for 30 years to the kids. We're currently mm-hmm. living in the early days of the NIL era in college sports. Back in July, the NCAA granted athletes the right to profit from the NIL, their name, image, and likeness. How does GSE fit into this landscape? Well, very firmly and strongly. We, before NIL, uh, you know, was was enacted, and and you know, and Joe, as you're aware, it's still uh, a rapidly developing space. I mean, it is. Is a, Wild West the uh, is a good good way to describe it? Is it <laughs> some, some people may. Yes. Some people may. <laughs> How about this? I can tell you, it is a a rapidly shifting uh, regulatory patchwork. We're we're trying to you know understand the you know some as you know certain states have have enacted laws those states laws not uniform uh, the NCAA uh, has given some guidance not not a tremendous amount uh, the federal government so far is looking at two different pieces of legislation so you know one yeah I mean Wild West it's it's not not a far cry but we. <laughs> 
we've had a um, we've had a very healthy uh, talent marketing business from before NIL. And you know, talent marketing we define as securing off-field, off-court, uh, off-course opportunities for for our clients. So, it, you know, anything that's not negotiating with a with a team, basically, uh, the Rolex deal, the Gatorade deal, the Bentley deal, the Goldman Sachs deal, the Rocket Mortgage deal, the DraftKings deal. So, what what we're doing is we are, you know, targeting certain schools and certain uh, individuals, athletes that we think have, you know, high marketing potential, uh, both as college athletes in their own right and who have the potential to, you know, be really good pros. And uh, we're taking a really targeted approach to, to how we, you know, one who we want to represent, uh, what we have to be a good fit with, and they have to be a good fit with us. Uh, and then, you know, we always want to under-promise and over-deliver. You know, we don't want to go out and try to sign 50, 50 kids, but not be able to secure deals for them. So it's, you know, it goes back to who's marketable and, and why. Uh, we're, we're very, we've signed, uh, geez, 11 uh, uh, NIL athletes uh, to date, and we're 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 looking. We're in a couple more conversations of of I think smart, mutually beneficial relationships right now. Cool. You know, one thing as you speak, the one thing I think about is: Do you take sort of like to borrow uh, Wall Street parlance, a buy and hold type thing where you're investing in players that maybe not just good now, but you know you're looking at a track record where after college they do have a very prolific professional career. I mean, are you keeping? Do you have that future focus when it comes to signing these NIL deals? Yes, we do. Uh, we do. I mean, uh, you know, representing a uh, a tight end for their name, image, likeness in college at first glance, you know, may not be the flashiest player on the team. But what about the quarterback or what about the, the wide receiver or how about that running back or ooh, what about the cornerback that could, you know, do that, uh, that pick six? Why are you guys go? Why are you guys representing the tight end? Well, we think he's going to be a terrific pro because, and by the way, we're proud to represent this this gentleman in college because one, they're good. Two, our kind of person, great personality, will think resonate really well in any sort of environment. Uh, you know, and and with with the the college kids, we focus less on uh, you know the marketability uh, looks as, a, a aspect of it because these are student athletes. We want to make sure that they're truly focused on. Uh, their skill and their and their personality. Hmm. And you know, I, I'm a Jets fan, so I don't want to wish Jalen Waddle too much luck since the yeah. Dolphins drafted him. But uh, what are you doing so far with the kids that just came out in the NFL draft? We're trying to be very selective in, in the, the deals that we secure for folks. We we don't want to. Uh, we also don't want to overload people. This is a very important time for Jalen. Uh, he's got to focus on you know understanding the game plan. He's got to read the book. He's got to study the book. He's got to develop relationships with his players. He's got to develop relationships with the quarterback. He's got to develop relationships with the coaches. You know, the last thing we want to do is to, you know, distract him or shift his focus away from being the best NFL player he could possibly be. So we're, we're really uh, being very cognizant and sensitive uh, of Jalen and his family uh, as, as how he progresses into the NFL. Cool. And, you know, movies like Jerry Maguire and TV shows like Entourage – really glamorize the world of sports agents. 
when a young person, say uh, Generation Z, or uh, asks you for advice, what's the first thing you tell them when it comes to pursuing a career in this space? Invest in yourself, Joe. You, you see these movies and, oh, yeah, if I could just go to the club and hang out with the guys or go to the gym and work out with the guys or be this person's, uh, you know, chaperone or hang out with them. And, you know, yeah, I'll, I'll do whatever it takes. I'll answer the call at three o'clock. I'll be turtle. It doesn't make a difference. Or I'll be, you know, the rock and ballers. And that's fairly one dimensional kind of stuff. If you if you want to be a really, really good agent, yes, you need to be able to have a relationship with people. But you've got to understand the business inside and out. If you want to be an agent in a team sport, study the CBA. Understand what other deals were done. Own those comps, you know, comparables. Know what it takes to be uh, good at a certain position. Learn the teams. You know, learn who's at what team, what, what the GMs think, who are the scouts, who are the coaches, the assistant coaches, the minor league managers. The more information that you could learn about the sport, the better you'll be. It's not show me the money and I've got a really good athlete and I'll just throw numbers out and they'll give me a deal. There's so much work behind it, Joe. The, the best agents are the ones that do all, all their work and beforehand and continue doing their work. And I know a lot of that stuff is uh, Hollywood eyes, but how do you think that Hollywood captures uh, your field, whether it's the Jerry Maguire's or the Ballers or Entourage, and I know you mentioned it's that they capture sort of the outer layer of it, but not the guts of it. Do you think they do a good job of of characterizing what it's like to be an agent? Oh man, it's it's tough. I'll tell you, I was actually very pleasantly surprised with Ballers when they actually went through. Uh, they got a little deeper with The Rock and how challenging it can be. I mean, this is. Uh, on the personality of, of the agent. I mean, it's, it's, if you think about it, it's an awesome responsibility of being an agent for somebody. I mean, this is not just a, hey, hat, let's have fun at the club or let me drive you around. I mean, you are a fiduciary of your client. That means, you know, you have to put your client's interests ahead of yourself. And sometimes you're dealing with, with amateurs, with 16, 17-year-olds in the, in the non-team sports or 18, 19, 20-year-olds, 20 21-year-olds who are just developing through life as normal young adults. And then you layer on the pressures and stressors of their, their inverted commas job. Then you layer on how to have a healthy relationship with money. And then you layer on how to have a healthy relationship with the friends and family around you. And the agent's job is to manage all of that for the benefit of their client. And then when you're talking about multi-generational wealth, that's an awesome responsibility. And it could be very emotionally taxing on an agent. It's, it's a very difficult job. I think ballers actually did the best job showing some of the, the pain and struggles that The Rock had in being a, a, an agent. And you're a sports fan, but you're also obviously in the sports agent world. Uh, when you see stories of an agent maybe steering a player to signing the biggest possible deal in maybe the worst situation. Maybe they're taking a lot of money for a bad team knowing they'll never win, but they're going to create all this generational wealth for their family. Like your agent side of you is probably like, yes, do that. But does like the fan in you be like, man, wouldn't it be better if that player took $2 million less to sign with a better team? How do you, Mike, separate that in your own brain? 
Yeah. So, Joe, that's a really interesting question. I'm going to give you a a, a middle-of-the-road answer that it depends on the circumstance. And let me throw a caveat on that because let's take the converse. Let's take the 19-year-old baseball player that's played one year in the majors and signed a $30 million deal for 10 years. Mm-hmm. Right? So on the other side is, as an agent, holy cow, this guy just might have given up literally $100 million of value. But who's to say? I mean, someone's off guaranteeing you $30 million and maybe you came from nothing or even maybe you were healthy. Someone guaranteeing you $30 million that may be a difficult thing to pass off, to pass away too. So it's it's one of these things where it, as a fan, you could look at it both ways. You know, if I'm a fan and I'm a club and one of, and, and we do, a, my guys sign a, a, a rookie up for $30 million, but we get 10 years plus two club options. As a fan, I could be going bananas saying, this is the best deal ever. Mm-hmm. As an agent, I may be saying, oh my God, I can't believe the agent did that deal. But we're not in, in, in the room with the family, and they may be saying, hey, $30 million, no one has to worry about anything ever again. Okay, that's fine, right? So it's really is a case-by-case situation. Yeah. You down in, in, in sort of like the war room ground level when it comes to the sports agents, do you take – I mean, or maybe this is something you've – conversations you've had with agents. How do you weigh winning against profits – like, because, you know, like we're going, I, I know you kind of went right down the middle of the road, but like if a situation comes up where, you know, or maybe this is a conversation you've had with someone in the field, like where the player's torn about getting the most amount of money, but then, or maybe going into a situation where they can win championships or, or, or be in a better situation. Maybe it's just a, a franchise that has a history of winning or something like that. How do, you know, and, and obviously, like you said, case by case basis, but generally, you know, what side do the players weigh in on that side? Do they usually generally just go with the bigger deal? Some do. Uh, yeah, I'd say, look, 80% do because you do have a finite period of playing time. You know, this isn't, uh, you know, the old days where if you're working at IBM, you're always working at IBM. You do have a short window to maximize your earning potential. Uh, on, on the other hand, if you have the opportunity to play in a really big market and the chance to win that may have a longer-term impact on your earning ability than you know making two or three or five extra million dollars for a, a club that's going to go one in sixteen or something. Awesome. Well, Mike. Well, you know what? I should probably ask one last thing because I know you guys are investing in NFTs. Um, for folks not super familiar with, it, because again, sort of like the NIL, it's sort of the the Wild West era of it. Uh, explain what an NFT is in sort of layman's terms as you can and how you are getting involved in NFTs. NFTs, it's, it's uh, short for non-fungible tokens, and they are unique digital uh, we'll call them works, of, works of art or digital collectibles that are uh, unique to a buyer that are limited and numbered. It's like a physical collectible or a physical work of art that is uh, uh, that lives in a digital medium, and these NFTs are are sold uh, sometimes at auctions, a, a timed auction or a Sotheby's like auction, uh, or sometimes they're just you know in a in a store uh, to to purchase. 
Uh, and look, they're they're fun. Um, they're interesting. It's a it's a new it's a new art. Uh, it's the wild west now. I think like everything, there will be a push towards quality. Uh, you know, there have been some fairly silly NFTs that have have gone out there. You know, uh, around bodily functions mm-hmm. and just silly things because of the uniqueness of it. Um, but uh, over time, I think the the Fad will slow down, and it will become a a rush to quality, but a it'll become a, 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 you know a, its own unique uh, uh, medium of of art. Where where we are with NFTs is we're not investing in buying or selling NFTs. Where we reside is using uh, working with our clients. And using their name, image, likeness, their marketability for the right clients to, you know, bring NFTs uh, on their behalf to the market. So we're NFT creators, not uh, acquirers or or investors in that sense. Cool. Lastly, if we were to put together a um, sort of Mount Rushmore of sports marketing stars, and obviously Jordan's up there, but if you had three other heads you could put on that Mount Rushmore about athletes that transcend their sports and became sports marketing gods, who would you put up there? Well, MJ, yes. One, and this is uh, nepotism is not alive and real, but I will say GSE client Bo Jackson. Okay. What the guy accomplished and what happened. Happened to be a um, a tragically shorter career than you may have realized. Yeah, is crazy. You know what? In a, in a weird way, I'm gonna put Babe Ruth up there if we're gonna go in the lexicon because Babe def- he was the granddaddy of baseball. Other folks uh, who everybody knew, um, but there was one Babe. Babe put the the face on on baseball. You know, on baseball, and and then you, you know what? I mean. I'm just trying to be um, fairly even about all those things. Looking at different at different sports, it's uh, it's hard to say Gretzky's not a piece of that as well. Because for a while, Brett Gretzky brought a sport uh, fully into the into the mainstream. I mean, he was MJ. He was MJ of his sport and really did a, an amazing job uh, getting behind it from a marketing perspective. Awesome. Well, Mike, well, we got some room for you up there on the, on that Mount Rushmore because yeah. you do a great job in sports marketing. He is the CEO of GSE Worldwide. Mike, thank you very much for the time. I really appreciate it. Hey, Joe, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for speaking with me and uh, enjoy the rest of the summer. Absolutely. You as well. And that's it for this edition of the Forbes Books Podcast. If you enjoy the show, make sure you take a second to subscribe so you automatically get my new shows when they drop. Also, if you have a minute, I would love if you left us a review so more amazing entrepreneurs like yourself can discover the show. And please, don't forget the golden rule and treat others as you want to be treated. Thanks for listening. Until next time, adios. This has been a production of Forbes Books Radio. Find out more at ForbesBooksRadio.com.